0: If you have your Bibles, take them in, and we're going to get back in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be heading in Ephesians probably for about another uh, eight to ten weeks. We're going to take a break um, for the book of Jonah, and then we'll come back to Easter. And then uh, the last part of April and May, we're going to be doing with uh, dealing with Ephesians chapter five, which is all on marriage and family and children and those sorts of things, and we may take a little bit longer as we settle in at that portion of Ephesians. But uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, we have been... Uh, working through the book of Ephesians since early this year. Uh, obviously, we've taken some breaks along the way, uh, but it has uh, just been a, a very rich time in God's Word. And we're at the point now in the book of Ephesians where uh, it really makes a shift. Uh, and so we'll mention a little bit of that uh, in a moment. But uh, if you have your Bibles open, we're going to read verses four, or chapter 4, uh, verse 1 um, to 6. Chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. who is over all and through all and in all. Father, thank you now for (laughs) this time that we have to turn to your word. Would you bless our time in it um, this morning? May it be profitable for our souls. May it make a difference in the way that we live and the way that we walk. May it truly help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Can you be in two places at the same time? Sometimes we hear that, uh, frustrated parents or, or uh, frustrated workers, I can't be in two places at the same time. Well, you can be. And in fact, if you are a child of God this morning, you are in two places at the same time. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1 summarizes the whole content of the book of Ephesians and it helps us just get the big picture of the book of Ephesians and it does tell us how we can be in two places at the same time. He tells them that, first of all, they are in Christ. And so there is a truth that happens when we become Christians, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we, we become those who are in Christ. We become grafted into the body of Christ. And Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 is all about how it is that we become in Christ, how it is that God takes us who are enemies, who are dead in our sins of trespasses, and he makes us together with Christ, reconciles us To Christ and to God. And so we are in Christ. But then he also says to them, he says, not only are they in Christ, but they are in Ephesus. They're actually in a physical place in the world. They live in a city called Ephesus. And so, in the very same way, they are two places at once. They're in Christ, they're in Ephesus. Well, the same is true of you and I. We are in Christ, we are in Oceanside. And, and uh, the first three chapters of the book tells us what it is to be in Christ. The last three chapters of the book explain how it is that you live out your life in the physical location that you find yourself. And so cha- the, 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 ver- the first verse frames the whole book uh, uh, of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians 1-3, uh, to three, chapters 1-3, to three, tell us what it is to be a saint. We are called saints as well. We are saints in Christ Jesus. It tells us everything that God has done for us. Ephesians chapter 4 uh, to 6 tell us what it means to be faithful. How it is that we live out our sainthood. How we become the people that we are called. How we become the saints that we are called. And then lastly, I mentioned this before and I think it's really important, that grammar, grammar makes a difference in the Bible. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, with one exception, is entirely in the indicative. By that, I mean, it tells us what God has done for us. Everything in the first three chapters is everything God has done for us. When you come to the last three chapters of the the book, they're in almost primarily the imperative. The imperative is the command, and so it tells us now how we respond to to everything that Christ has done for us. So the the, the first um, verse of Ephesians 1 frames the whole book. Its grammar tells us about the whole book. And as we come then to to chapter 4, it's the first glimpse that we have of what it means for us to be um, walking in Christ. What it means for us to walk worthily of Christ. What it means for us to respond to all that Christ has done for us. And it's strange to me, Maybe not so strange to me, that the first emphasis in in the first uh, 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 six verses of Ephesians 4, this practical side of what it means to live out your faith, is an emphasis about what it means to be part of a family. If you recall back in chapter 3, one of the things that happened, um, or chapter 2, is when we are saved, when we are reconciled to God through Christ Jesus, it says that we then become members of the household of God. You now, now, uh, those of you who are Christians, are brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're a Christian here today, you are a member of the household of God. And so one of the first emphases that Paul gives to these new Christians after he's told them all that God has done for them, he says one of their first things that they need to learn to do is how they ought to live as a family. How we ought to get along with one another now that we are part of this new household of God. And I think this is so important for us to understand. Because our getting along with one another is a testimony to the world of the power of God to transform those who are enemies and opposed to each other and to bring them together as one. And so when the the world looks at us, when they look from the outside at the Christian church, what they should see is a group of people that are striving and working to get along with one another, to demonstrate the power of God, to reconcile those who are separated by race, separated by culture, separated by economics, separated by, 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 um, by sex, bring them together and make them one big family. And when there is infighting, when there are divisions within the church, then the world has every reason to look at us and say, well, you're no different than my strata. You're no different from my my family at home. So why should I put my faith and trust in God? Why do I need Him if your relationships are just as messed up as my relationships? And so Paul starts off and he says one of the first ways That we respond to the grace of God and all that God has done for us is we learn how to get along with one another in the body of Christ. How we learn to get along with the people of God in the family of God. And so, that's the first thing he tells us in verse 1. The the family's mandate, I call it. And it's simply, um, we have a calling. And our calling as Christians is to walk worthily of the calling that we have received. In other words, God has taken us who were, who were dead in our sins and trespasses. He's taken us who were enemies of him. He's taken us who were hostile towards one another. He's made us alive. He's taken us from darkness to light. He's taken us from following the passions of our flesh and mind to now being indwelt with the Holy Spirit so that we now have impulses to walk in a manner that's worthy to God. And he says now that our first response is to walk in thankfulness to all that God has done for us. To walk in a way that reflects our new life. To walk in a way that reflects that we've been called from hostility to peace. To, to walk in, in this different way with one another. This part of Ephesians is a real crossroad time for a Christian. Because you can it's impossible for a Christian to say, Well, God has saved me now. It doesn't matter how I live. That is nowhere found in the Bible. There is always a response that is required from us and that is expected from us to live out the change that God has infected in our life. And it's probably one of its most summary forms. We find it in in Timothy, 2 Timothy, I think it's chapter 2, verse 19, where it says, let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. It simply says, if you call yourself a Christian, walk like a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, stop lying, stop cheating, stop, start working on patience and forgiveness. So there is an expectation that we will change in response to the grace of God. And in fact, it's the grace of God that enables us to change. It's the grace of God that enables us to respond to this calling that we've received. Loved ones, when you become a Christian, you become part of the best family in the world. You become, you become now associated to the best father in the world. There is never a father that will come close to our heavenly father in his love, in his care, in his protection, in his provision, in everything that we come to expect from a father. There is nothing, no one that will ever come close to him. When you become a Christian, you can call the God of this universe your father. And not only can we call God our father, but we call Jesus Christ our brother. That is astounding to me that that, that not only do we have the best father in the world, but we have the best brother in the world, in the whole universe. And so our family mandate or our calling is to walk in a way that reflects our father, that walk in a way that reflects our relationship to our brother, Christ. And so, that's our calling. We are called out of darkness. We are called out of death. We are called out of selfishness. We are called out of hostility into this amazing family. And Paul says, now, that's how we respond to God's grace. Begin to learn how to get along with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Begin to learn how to love God your Father. Begin to learn how to walk step-by-step step with Christ, your brother. The second thing, though, that he goes, and we're, we're flying through this, but the second thing that he, he talks about is the, the family's behavior. What are, what are some of the, the general expectations of us as sons and daughters of God? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I think it's pretty important that we think about that. He lists for us at least five things, um, five characteristics Five behaviors that we should begin adopting as Christians that help us get along with one another. And I think this is probably one of uh, the—this has really hit me this last— I've been looking at this for four or five months because we've had a break. Um, But I think that what he's about to say in verses 2 and 3 is the basis of a parenting course. It's For me, it's, it's, it's a basis of what you would want to structure your home like so that your home was a godly home. And if I were to entitle this, um, you know, a, a parenting course, I would probably call it something like this. Sibling Relationships, Behaviors and Attitudes to Teach Your Children. This is, this is what Paul is going to help us understand now, is how we ought to get along with one another. And what I find is that the things that he's going to talk about is stuff that we don't talk about very much as parents. It's even things that we don't talk very much about as a church. They're things that are, are, are very almost opposite of what the world tells us to teach our children, of what the world tells us that we should be like. And what, we're, what we realize as we look at them is they have to be supernatural in their origin. They have to be given to us by somebody who thinks differently than us. Because these are not things that we normally want to do, nor are these things normal um, behaviors that we cultivate in our homes. But these are critical things about what we need to do. Five attitudes. So here they are, and we'll, we'll, we'll see how quickly we can get through them. The first thing that we need to learn as Christians And I think one of the most important things that you can teach your children in the home is to learn how to think rightly about yourself and others. To learn how to think rightly about yourself and others. He says, first of all, you need to live with all humility. Humility. The word is actually humble-mindedness here. And how different from assert your rights, fight for your view, stand up for your opinion. The Greeks hated this word. It was a word that that they they wanted nothing to do with this word humility. And until Christ came, and until He demonstrated what humility actually is, and we can read that in Philippians chapter two, verses three to four, we will read that how Christ it says humbled Himself, how He set aside the prerogatives of deity. He humbled Himself. He took on the form of the servant, even to the point of death. That is the trait and the characteristic that we are to learn ourselves as Christians. That in itself, if we would all learn lowly-mindedness, we would, we would transform Christian relationships. If we would understand what Paul is meaning here. It, it's, it's, a point, it's pointing to selflessness. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3-4. to four. Uh, Would you ever teach this to your kids? Maybe you do. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Wouldn't that change the dynamic of sibling rivalry? If once in a while you said, you know, Johnny, your sister has a really good idea here. Let's do it. Let's listen to what your sister wants to do this time. And I think we ought to do it her way. Um, and, And would you stop fighting and would you stop thinking that you're, you're the only one in this family, and begin to transform the way that they think about their siblings and they think about their parents. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He says, I give you each this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given you. That is something that's really hard to do. And I've wrestled with that in, in, a, in a couple areas. I remember, uh, particularly in one setting, a church I was in, a previous church I was in, and, and the church was just going through a real mess. I'd been at the church for a little while. The senior pastor had resigned, and they were looking for somebody to take over the preaching responsibilities in the interim. And I, I thought, well, it's me. I can do that. Um, you know, pick me, pick me. Well, they didn't pick me. And for the first Two or three months, I was pretty bitter about it and pretty bummed out about it because I thought, I've put in the time here. I thought, I've got the experience. I've got the training. Why don't you let me do that? But as I look back on it now, it was the very best thing they could have done both for me and for the church in not picking me to do that. But I had this kind of viewpoint that I needed to be the one that would do that, that I thought I was better than I really was. And so we need, that's what this word means. It says, don't think of yourself as better than you are. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Jeremiah 9.23, don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand the Lord. I think that is one of the the first um, attitudes that we need to learn. And one of the things that we need to teach in our home Humbleness of mind, humility of mind, considering others' ideas as as more important than your own, considering yourself in the proper light. Remember, it was the humble-mindedness of Christ that led him to the cross. And so I think one of the first things that we need to learn is we need to learn humbleness of mind and practice humbleness of mind. The second thing that he talks about is power under control. Power under control. He says, With all humility and gentleness. And gentleness. Gentleness is not a synonym for weakness. Gentleness is a quiet, willing submission to God and to others. It leaves no room for rebellion and for revenge and for retaliation and for self-assertion that is so characteristic of our sinful natures. The word means power under control. That's what gentleness means. It means power under control. We might think of a gentle giant. Giant is strength and might. But a gentle giant is one that has got his power under control. In the Greek language, it's used for a soothing medicine. I took Buckley's before the service. And it's right. It tastes, it tastes awful, but it works. It's power under control. It's this medicine that is strong medicine, but it's controlled and it's able to soothe the throat. It's a, it's a word that's used to describe a colt that has been broken, so now one can ride that colt. It's a, it's a word that's used to describe a soft wind. In each case, you have power, but it's power that's under control. It never retaliates, it never seeks revenge, it never speaks evil or unkindly about another. It's reflected in our tone of voice, it's reflected in our body posture, it's reflected in our use of strength. Paul urges the people, he says, now I, Paul, appeal to you with, gentleness and the, with the gentleness and kindness of Christ. Or even Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Gentleness reflects an acceptance of whatever comes to me. But when it comes to God, it says, I will stand for him. I will defend him. I will oppose all those who oppose him. And notice the word there. It says, for both of those with all humility and with all humility. Gentleness. Why, why do you think God, has, um, as Paul was writing this, God inspired him or urged him to add that little world all? I think it's because we have a tendency to look for exceptions. I think it's that we, we want to look for ways that we don't have to be gentle. Or for situations where we don't have to be humble. We look for behaviors that excuse our misbehaviors. And we sometimes can think of that humility and gentleness are rather the exception than the rule. He says, no, with all humility and with all gentleness. I was thinking of this with leadership strength. We are not to lord it over people. I was thinking of this with physical strength. We are not to use our physical strength to push people around and to push them out of the way. We're not to use our intellectual strength. Some people have, have minds that are so sharp and are so quick that they can use their, their, their minds to intimidate people and to make them feel small. Some people use their verbal strength. Some people have got such quick wits and such quick tongues that they can, they can make you feel like an idiot in, in two seconds flat by a word that they say because they don't have their tongues under control. And so he says, with all humility and gentleness, with your strength, with your mind, with your mouth, in every situation, in your leadership, get it under control. In other words, we are to be like Jesus. We are to be one who is gentle and lowly of spirit. So these are two of the things that he says should characterize us as Christians. We should be those who have a right way of thinking towards others. We should be those who have our our strengths under control. If God has given you a mind, thank the Lord he's given you a mind. Get it under control. Use it properly in the family of God. I was thinking of this in relation to Ravi Zacharias. I don't know if you've ever um, watched anything by Ravi Zacharias. He is probably uh, one of the most smart intellectually astute men that I have ever heard or come across. And yet, he does these question and answer times all around the world, in all different settings, and when anyone asks him a question, he would have the ability to make them look like a goof in like eight seconds flat. I guess I probably shouldn't use that word, right? Maybe I should make them look silly, or I don't know, dumb. Maybe that's just as bad. Anyhow, um, but he doesn't. He, he looks at him, he's gentle, and he says, you know, that's a, that's a really thoughtful question that you've asked. And this is, this is, I think, how I would approach that question. He doesn't use his intellect and his quick wit to overpower people. And so Paul is saying here, with all humility and with all gentleness. The third thing that he mentions here, he says that we should, um, with, with patience. Do we teach patience in our homes? Do we should teach patience in the church it's the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back to hold yourself in control for a long time and not give in to passion this is something that is very difficult to do it's a, it's the determination to take the long view even when things are going wrong right before your eyes it's the ability to look past the circumstances Pass the situation. Pass the person and say, it's going to get better. It's not as bad as it could be. There's hope. We're going to get through this. And so he says, we need to learn to develop patience. And when we have this patience, we won't blow up. We don't have a short fuse. We don't lose it when things don't go our way. And I'll just say these. I won't illustrate them. But patience is an attitude which never gives in to negative circumstances. It's one that doesn't allow circumstances to crush us and to take away our spirit. But rather it looks at circumstances even in a long-term view and says, I will trust God. I believe God. And I'll just throw this out there. Abraham, it was as Abraham was a patient man. How long did he wait for the promise of God that he would have a son? 25, 30 years. I I don't remember exactly how long it was. It was a long, long time that he made it that he waited. What about Jeremiah? Jeremiah, you know what Jeremiah was called? He was called the weeping prophet. Do you know that Jeremiah was given a message and God told him, you know, no one's ever going to listen to you, but this is the message that I have for you. He had this patient endurance that he trusted God, even though the people mocked him, even though they tried to kill him, even though they tried to stone him, even though they tried to get him out of the way. He had patient endurance to do what God had called him to do, to the people that God had called him to do it for. Patient it. So it helps us deal with negative circumstances. Patience is, is something that says, I can take anything that people dish out to me. Sometimes we need to be patient with people, not just with circumstances, but we need to be patient with people. And patience says, I will not retaliate. I will not take revenge in this situation. I don't care the insult. I don't care the injury. I don't care the unfair treatment. I don't care the slander, the criticism, the hatred, the envy, the jealousy. I will not fight back. That is such a hard thing for us to do. But we need to learn to be patient with people. To be patient with the things that they say and do. And then the third one is patience, is, is we need to understand and accept God's plan for everything and not argue with it. To be patient with God. And so this is the, the third thing that he teaches us. Is, he says, as a family of God, we need to cultivate a patience amongst ourselves learn to share how you're being patient in circumstances how you're being patient with people how you're being patient with God even though things aren't going the way that you thought they would go in your life and as you do that you will build up and you will strengthen the family of God the fourth thing that he talks about the fourth uh, attitude to cultivate is he says eager to maintain or bearing sorry with one another in love bearing with one another in love What that reminds me is is that we're all works in progress. Do you you believe that? Do you believe that there's not one of us here that has made it yet? There's not one of us here that isn't still a work in progress? And so this word forbearing, the, the New Living Translation says, make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Boy, we need to learn how to do that. We are so quick to jump on people. So quick to, 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 to point out their, their faults. And one of the things that Paul says is, as brothers and sisters in Christ, learn to bear with one another. Learn to be patient with one another. I think sometimes it means what First Peter 4.8 says, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. That is so hard to do, is it not? To forbear with other people in love. Forbearing love says, I can endure this. I can take it. And I can love in the middle of what's going on. When you're tempted to fight back, when you're tempted to shoot back, when you're tempted to speak unkindly, bear with one another because we are all works in progress. When people don't see the things the way that I do, forbear. When people don't do things the way that I would do them, Forbear. When people haven't had the same breaks in life that you have, forbear. When people haven't had the same or don't have the same opinions that you do, forbear. You see, it's not just about taking it on the chin and, 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 and taking one for the church, so to speak. It's taking it on the chin and still loving, still bearing with that person, still enduring with that person. It's a characteristic that reminds us that no matter what anybody does, I am going to love them. That is a hard thing to do. But this is what we are enabled to do because we are now becoming like Christ. And the final uh, behavior or attitude that he says, he says, guard unity eagerly with the crazy glue of peace. Well, that's mine. Um, But guard unity eagerly with the crazy glue of peace. He says there, um, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. It's a continuous activity. Striving, looking for ways to maintain unity. Looking for ways to break down division and build up unity together. He says, make every effort at it. Be eager to do it. Look for ways to maintain the peace that has been created by Christ. In other words, it's Paul's way of saying, let's hurry up and make peace. Uh, Sometimes we're, we're quick to to, to, to maintain hostilities or divisions. He says, no, hurry up and make peace. Hurry up and resolve things. And I often find that the quicker things are resolved, the quicker things are forgotten. But the longer we take to resolve something, the more chance we have for bitterness and anger and those things to, to build up. And so he's saying here, be eager to maintain the, the unity of peace or the, 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 the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We, you know, I'll just summarize these last ones really quick, quick for them. Um, so we've got the calling, walk worthily uh, of the calling that you've received. We've got the behaviors, the five behaviors that he talks about. Humility, um, gentleness, uh, forbearing love, patience, and eagerness to maintain peace. That that's what we are called to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then the last thing, and I, I probably need to come back to this at some point because I think this is one of the most important things. But there is a framework of what is acceptable ways of thinking. I wish I could explain this this better. But in verses 4 to 6, the word one is used seven times, more than any other place passage in the Bible, seven times. And some look at that and say, well, that's the number of perfection. But I think one of the things that Paul is saying here is that it's important that we know what the boundaries are of what's acceptable and not to believe. And, and I think that even here you have a course on, on basic church doctrine. On what are the things that are in some ways um, non-negotiable. What are the boundaries of Christian fellowship? And he, he lists them here. And I think the first thing to notice is the Trinitarian nature of them which sets us apart already as a church. We are to be a church that believes in one God who has revealed himself in three persons. He says there is one spirit in verse 4. In verse 5, there is one Lord. In verse 6, there is one God. We cannot be an evangelical Christian church if we do not all subscribe to the Trinity. If we do not all subscribe to the fact that God has revealed himself as three in one. There are lots of places out there who don't believe that, who don't subscribe to that. This Paul is saying that one of the boundaries of Christian fellowship and unity is that we subscribe to the fact that there is one God who has revealed himself in three different ways. He's a Trinitarian God. And he, he, he says, and man, we don't have time to look at these, I'll just mention them. He says there is one body and one spirit and one hope. The Spirit of God has made us all part of the same body. The Spirit of God indwells each one of us. And the Spirit of God gives us all one hope, and I think that that hope is the fact that one day we will be together and forever with Jesus Christ. That is a work of the Spirit, and we have to believe those three basic things about what the Spirit does. And then in verse 5, he talks about the Lord, Christ. And he says, there is one faith, And one baptism. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. I think even that's uh, important. One Lord. There is one Jesus who has died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is one master of our life. There is one Lord that we submit to, and that is Jesus Christ. And there is one faith, whether that is a settled body of truth given to us by Christ, or whether it's the subjective response to Christ, uh, I'll leave that for you to think about. But there is one faith. There is one way of one system of belief, one way of putting our faith and trust in Christ which is central to the unity of the body of Christ. One baptism. I think that that points to, 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 to the baptism that is a response to the saving work of God in our lives. It's not the baptism that we all receive and come into the body of Christ. That would have then come under his, his discussion of the Spirit. I believe what he's talking about there is there is one baptism. There is one way in which we identify with the death and the resurrection of Christ. And that is through, as believers, um, following in the waters of baptism. That's why I think baptism is so important. He says it's one of the pillars of the church. And then finally, we share the same Father who is over all and in all. Just blasted through those very quickly. But, loved ones, that's the evidence. This is where Paul starts. This is how we begin working out our faith as brothers and sisters in Christ. We work it out in a family setting. We work it out in a way that's saying, God, you have done so much for me. You have delivered me from, a, I could never have delivered myself. You have saved me, and I could have never have saved myself. Will you help me walk in a way that reflects the amazing calling that I've received? The fact that you have even opened my eyes to see the beauty of Christ. Will you help me now to walk in a way that honors your name? And then Paul says, and that, that worthy walk is, is illustrated in the behaviors. Father, You know how much trouble I have being humble-minded. You know how I wrestle with you give me so many ideas and I always think they're right. But God, you've got to help me to bring them in line with the church and to be willing sometimes to let my ideas go and to consider other people as just as important, if not more important than me. Would you give me gentleness, God? You've gifted me in so many ways, but I need to learn how to bring those things under control. Father, I'm so impatient with people. I see them. and, And sometimes it's good patience, God but will you help me be patient? Will you help me forbear with people? Will you help me strive for unity? And then, Father, will you help me understand that there are some non-negotiables And that when the family of God gets together and and somebody starts talking about the fact that, well, maybe there really aren't three gods, will you help me defend that? Will you help me stand for that, Father? Would you help me express the truths that you have revealed to us as a church that are so important for us to stand on? And so in loved ones, there is so much to work on in just these six verses of Scripture. But may God speak to each of our hearts. And show us the area. Maybe it's the calling that we need to work on. Maybe it's the the characteristics of family life that we need to develop. Maybe it's it's the theology that we need to wrap our minds a little bit around. But God will help us through his spirit to figure out what is the area that we need to work on in our life this week.